0: Well, what we've just done by celebrating the Lord's Supper together has been a powerful act of participation in what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. As Pastor Dan was leading us in it, reminding us some things about it. It's not only an opportunity to examine ourselves, to confess sin and receive by faith the forgiveness that's available through Christ's sacrifice, but it's also an, an actual act of obedience to Jesus himself. It's a chance for us to obey, physically, with our bodies, a command that Jesus left for us to do. It's a gift of grace that we not only remember the death that Jesus died in our place, but we also begin to enter into the life that Jesus was, for our sake, resurrected to. Observing communion makes us deeply grateful, and it also gives us the proper motivation we need to go out from here And live lives that fulfill the great commandment that Jesus spoke of. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And of course, as an expression of that love for the Lord, to love your neighbor as yourself. The source of the motivation to love God comes from God himself. He's the one who reveals his truth to us in his word through Jesus Christ. God the Holy Spirit is the one who works in our hearts to bring us to the point where we can trust in what Jesus has done for us in faith. And it's that trust in Jesus inside of us, in our mind and our soul and our heart, which ends up overflowing into that response of love and worship and adoration, which should characterize the lives of those whom Jesus has saved. The source of obedience to that command to love the Lord comes from the faith inside of us. But the place where that obedience actually happens is our bodies, if you think about it. If you're going to love the Lord your God with your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength, the way you are going to express that love is by loving God with your body. I'll give you an example. I I recently had to replace my phone. About six weeks ago, I got an update and so I'm currently about six months away from understanding what my new phone can actually do. Uh, but just last week, I discovered that my phone has been, without my even asking to do it, keeping track of how many steps I take each day. So I was curious, and I looked back at how many steps I'd taken over the course of a few weeks, and I was surprised to learn how much it can vary from one day to the next. You know, one day, eight or 9,000 steps. The very next day, 2,000 steps. I might have inflated that number, actually. Uh, But that's a a pretty significant gap in physical activity from one day to the next, and I would not have guessed that the gap was that large. Before I had this tool, if you'd asked me, I would have told you I was pretty much consistent in my physical activity one day to the next. The thing is, my phone does not keep track of how often I think about getting up and going for a walk. I hear that's a standard feature by iPhone 9. My phone doesn't report to me how active I feel I've been. It just informs me how much I have actually, physically, with my body, got up and moved around. And imagine if we could try a similar experiment, comparing how much we think and feel we are loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how much we feel we're loving our neighbors. If we could actually compare that with all the things we really do with our body every minute of a whole week. I wonder what we would find. I wonder if the the results would surprise us, the same way my step count on my phone was a bit of an eye-opener for me. So here's our question this morning. When you think about what it means to be a Christian, to be someone who is saved from sin and death by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, someone who belongs to the God and Father of Jesus Christ, who is filled with the Spirit of God and set apart for an eternal life, of joyful worship of your Creator, when you think about what it means to be a Christian, do you include all of the things you actually physically do? Or do you just by default kind of subconsciously limit what it means to live for, the Christ, to live for Christ to the point where it just kind of consists of all the things that you feel and think and say and believe, but find it actually it maybe leaves out large chunks of what you're actually just doing during the week? Do you regularly think about what it means to glorify God with your body? The passage we're going to hear from this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll encourage you to turn there now. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 12 to 20. If you're here visiting with us today and you don't have a Bible, or if you just don't have a Bible on you, I encourage you to maybe find one of the black ones that are just stashed underneath the chairs in their own front of you as it will really help to have the Word of God in front of you, because we'll keep referring back to it this morning. The book of 1 Corinthians is found about nine-tenths of the way into your Bible, uh, just after another large book called Romans, and if you're using one of the black Bibles under the chairs, you'll find it on uh, page 954. A few quick words about the background of this letter that we're about to read. 1 Corinthians is a letter. It's written from the Apostle Paul to correct and instruct and encourage a community of first-generation Christians living in the city of Corinth. These Corinthians were people who had come to know and trust in Jesus to save them from their sins and restore them to a relationship with God. They were Christians. But they were having a hard time working out what that really looked like in their day-to-day life, now that this was all new for them. the the, The Corinthians had issues, just like we have issues, and also, just like us, they needed help in thinking through having Jesus, how having Jesus as your Lord and Savior is going to change the way your life needs to be lived. You could describe these Christians as people who had really believed, they really did have the life of Christ within them, but at this point, they still had a little bit too much of the world left in them as well. I can't think of a closer situation than what we find in the church in Canada today. So the passage we're about to read addresses one particular issue that some of these Corinthian Christians were struggling with, something that used to be normal for them in their old life, but now, because they belong to Jesus, they're going to have to look at this issue in a new way. And in order to mentally justify the way that they had been going on and doing things the old way still, they had a bunch of slogans and catchphrases and mottos that helped them feel like what they were doing was okay. Okay. And in writing this letter, Paul needs to call out those catchphrases and those mottos and those slogans and expose them for what they are. And the way he accomplishes that is through a writing style called a diatribe. What we're about to read is a diatribe. Um, if, I, if I talk to you about a monologue, you would know what that is, right? One person, one voice speaking out. Uh, a dialogue, that's a conversation, that's two people, two voices. And a diatribe is an imaginary conversation between two people, but only one person is really in the driver's seat. You all know what this is. This is the argument that you have in your head every time you're upset with someone or something didn't go the way you wanted it to, and it's that argument that you always win because you control both sides of it. So Paul is going to quote a lot of the things that the Corinthians were saying. He's going to quote their slogans back at them, and then he's going to have a conversation with those sayings. He quotes what they're saying to justify their sin, and then he points out something that is true about their relationship in Christ. So see if you can follow, as we read it, the back and forth as we read, and look for the big gospel truths that Paul wants to press into them and, and change their mind with. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The way we're going to work through this passage is by identifying the slogans or lies about the body that were common in Corinth, and then we're going to point out the gospel truth that exposes and corrects those lies. But before we start, it's worth pointing out the actual specific issue that was going on that that probably prompted this passage to be written. And the issue uh, would have been what was called temple prostitution. Whenever there was a party or a social event associated with a particular temple for a god or a goddess or an idol in Corinth, it was customary and expected and just kind of normal to have as part of the entertainment available at that party some prostitutes who were available to be slept with. The issue in 1 Corinthians 6 would be that some of the Christians in the church were still doing that. And they were not only doing that, but they were thinking that was okay. That they could go on doing that, even though they were now believers. And the reason they thought this was probably because that kind of activity was not considered even a little bit scandalous within the culture. It was just normal. It was so normal, no one would ever even think to question whether or not a new change in your life, like joining a new church, would change what you do uh, in, in regards to those actions. It would have been revolutionary to think, oh, you mean I have to stop that? You mean life is different now? So we need to realize it's not really our job to pass judgment on the original hearers of this message, as if we're better than them because we have an easier time identifying that this is wrong. It is wrong, by the way. We'll see that as we work through the passage. It's entirely incompatible, with the good purposes of God in creation and in redemption. If you are currently visiting temple prostitutes or going to these parties, stop. I mean it. It's wrong. But but what you and I need to be conscious of and sensitive to as we read through this is that there are many, many things in the world we live in today which might seem so normal and so common that we could forget to ask the question, does this glorify God with my body? Is this compatible with God's good purposes and with Christ's rule over me? Or is this something that actually has to go, that can't join me in my walk with Christ? We live in a world where pornography has gone very quickly from being taboo to so commonplace that it's a punchline in lazy jokes about the internet. We live in a country where it's not only normal, but almost expected of a good patriotic citizen to borderline worship a sports team. We live in a time when sex outside of marriage is so common, so commonplace, that the conventional wisdom, like the, the wisdom being passed down from elders to youth, actually advises it. You better try it before you buy it, that kind of thing. We live in an age when gambling is so just accepted that our government takes its cut out of the lotteries. And there's all these other things. We, we live in a time where alternative lifestyles, uh, homosexual relationships and transgenderism and everything that falls under that umbrella is not only accepted, but we're putting, our country is putting special laws in place to make sure that everyone agrees with it and supports it. So we live in a world that's full of slogans and worldviews that are so prevalent It takes the word of God, spoken from the outside into our situation, to help us understand the truth and know the truth. We live in a world where powerful companies and brands and advertising agencies have made a science out of tapping into and feeding off of our own preferences, right? Burger King's motto, have it your way. They know what they're doing. They know that's what we want to hear, even if their food isn't what we want to eat, You've always got time for Tim Hortons. If it feels good, do it, is what all these things mean, right? Uh, The most famous advertising slogan, probably of all time, I think, is three words. Just do it, right? One swoosh and three little words, and that company, Nike, is recognizable across the entire globe. Now, is that good advice? Is that good advice to give someone, just do it? If you're trying, it probably depends on the situation, right? If someone tells you just do it, it depends entirely on what the it is. If you're trying to decide whether or not you should rev up your dirt bike and hit the big jump, if your name is Josh Kieski, I know he's not here this morning, but just do it is probably great advice if you're Josh. If your name is Kelly Kieski, then maybe good advice, maybe not. Probably depends on the situation. And if your name is Andrew Chambers, then just do it in that particular situation is probably the worst advice anyone could give you. But we need to be aware is that the convincing voices and the clever slogans and the power that comes from looking around and feeling like just everyone is doing it, everyone is doing it, so it must be okay, that's a powerful thing. And if you aren't prepared to think and guard against it, it will conform your actions which is why it's so important to learn to do what Paul does with the Corinthians in this passage, which is to take the truths of the gospel and have them interact with what you're hearing out there in the world so that you can weigh what's out there against what is true in Christ. The first worldly slogan that we encounter in verse 12 is this, all things are lawful for me. We might restate it this way, I am free to do whatever I please. And there is a level that this actually lines up closely with some of the truths in the gospel. Jesus Christ has set us free from the law, from slavish attempts to keep a set of rules we could never have kept on our own. Christians are, in truth, the most free people who have ever existed. Jesus Christ sets us free from the requirements of the law, and in Jesus we are also set free from the power of sin. Apart from Jesus, a sinful and fallen human being is not free not to sin. Before I met Jesus, I was not free to do God's will. Even though sin had deceived me, and I thought I was my own master, the reality was I was not free to stop sinning. I was a slave. When Jesus saved me, I was freed from slavery to sin. And Christians are the most free people in the world. But it is possible to take that language about freedom and twist it until it does harm. When someone chants the slogan, I'm free to do whatever I please, all things are lawful for me, probably what they really mean is this. Since Jesus' blood has washed away all my sins, past, present, and future, then I guess I'm pretty much able to do whatever I want now, and it's okay. Since I could never do what Jesus did for me anyway... I guess I don't have to try. I can go on sinning and Jesus will go on forgiving me forever and ever uh, on the basis of his death. And the way Paul responds to this maxim that all things are lawful for me is to point out, yes, but some things will hurt me. Some things will make a slave out of me. All things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, Christ died to set you free from sin, and now you really are free, but some of the things you do might have the potential to take away that freedom. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. There are times when we need to ask, not can I do this thing, but what are the consequences if I do this thing? If it was worth Jesus' death to free you from sin, then it's not okay to go back to it, as if it doesn't matter. The best version of your life doesn't include that thing that he rescued you from, that thing that made you a slave. Those things weren't doing you any good before. In fact, they were killing you. So why, now that Jesus has set you free, why would you go back to them now? The second slogan that's been used to justify sins in the body is in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. There's some scholarly debate about where the Corinthian slogan ends and where Paul's words begin, but either way, this second lie is saying this. My body is only temporary, so it doesn't matter what I do with it. Our bodies don't last forever. We can eat what we want, and not only that, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Whatever my body wants, I might as well give it, because it's not going to matter in the long run. This line of thinking is the same thing as it's the, you know, that catchy song. That's, it's so catchy, but it's just not quite right when you hear it. You know, we're here for a good time, not a long time, so have a good time. The sun can't shine every day. Like Just do, do what feels good for now, and that's all that matters. What kind of response does Paul give to this? Well, they said food is for the stomach, and the stomach's for food. But Paul says the body is not meant for sexual sin. But the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. They were trying to say, ah, God's just going to destroy them both anyway, but Paul points out God raised the Lord, and will raise us up by his power. So the response to the lie that our bodies are temporary and can be used however we feel like, without consequence, is this. Because Jesus rose bodily from the dead we who are his will also be raised bodily from the dead. What we do here and now in our bodies will have results that last forever. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Jesus wants all of you, including your body. Jesus has redeemed all of you, including your body. Let's read starting in verse 15. Do you not know... That your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. The explanation for this reaches all the way back. To the way sex was designed and given to the first husband and wife in Genesis chapter 2. The two will become one flesh. In order to understand what Paul says about our bodies being members of Christ, and that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, we have to at least have a working knowledge of God's intentions for marriage and for sex. Sex is designed for marriage. Because the physical act of being one flesh corresponds to a spiritual oneness that is also experienced by husband and wife. For married Christians, for people who have physical bodies and spiritual souls, the regular, sacrificial, loving, and intimate act of sex is an important part of the oneness, the one flesh relationship that God has designed marriage for. Sometimes we aren't great at saying that out loud in the church, but it's true. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 goes on to address that in some more detail. Now, because this act of physical unity has such important connections to the spiritual unity of a married couple, to take that relationship outside of marriage does harm. It does harm on an individual and physical and spiritual and emotional level. But get this, it also does harm Because it confuses the beautiful picture that marriage gives us of the kind of unity that Christians are given to experience in their relationship with Jesus. In verse 17, we read, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. When you become a Christian, you are actually spiritually united with Jesus in a relationship that far exceeds what any human marriage could ever achieve. Whether you're married or single, your sexuality is a sacred opportunity to demonstrate the relationship that Christ has with his church. If you're a married Christian, your marriage is an opportunity to reflect, in a small, imperfect way, the kind of unity that's actually enjoyed on a spiritual level between Jesus and his people, and will one day be enjoyed more and more in in eternity. If you are a single Christian, living a pure and sanctified life, is an opportunity to demonstrate the kind of single minded devotion to Jesus that is fitting for his bride, his church. Marriages here and now are an imperfect picture of what will come. Single celibacy here and now is a perfect preparation for what will one day be the marriage supper of a lamb. And if we have trouble thinking about our relationship with Jesus in these kinds of terms, usually the trouble comes because we do our thinking backwards. We begin with what we know about the physical act of sex and we try to extend that up to somehow encompass our relationship with God and how we think about that. And it's, it, it's, it's hard to think that way. We, we, we can't do it. But we've, because we've got the direction wrong. The real truth, the real picture, begins with the loving relationship that God has with us and that Christ has with the church. And then the picture of that unity that we have in marriage is the lesser thing. It's the lesser comparison that points towards the greater thing. We need to be able to properly think about our unity with Christ when we go out into the world. Because if we can't keep that truth in our minds, and if we don't know it, and if we don't know how to think about it, that we're actually spiritually joined with Jesus then all of the other voices in the world, all the catchy slogans and lies, they're going to overwhelm us if we're not prepared to think something better. But if you are a Christian, the truth remains. Everything you do with your body, here and now in this life, you bring Jesus along with you. Everything you do with your body, here in this life, if you are a Christian, you bring Jesus along with you. Think about that truth. Let it influence your decision the next time you're tempted to do something that would dishonor God with your body. Let it also be a source of joy for you when you are doing things that are honoring to God in your body. What Paul thinks is the reasonable response to all of this, that what you do in your body is permanent and that the body of a Christian is actually a part of Christ himself, is pretty simple. Verse 6, flee from sexual immorality. Simple command. Don't see how close you can get to the fire before you're burned. Don't walk away and look back over your shoulder. Run. Think about all the people, many who have been older than you or wiser or stronger or more spiritual who have fallen and been bitten by that. Don't listen to the world's slogans about how everyone's doing it and it's fine and it's not going to do any harm. Paul's advice, the, the advice scripturally, is just flee. Don't try and stand near that fire. And if you don't already have enough reasons to pay attention... There are more, more coming. We're uh, moving on to verse eighteen now, and commentators are divided here. But I, I personally believe that here in verse eighteen we have the third slogan that the Corinthians have been using to to justify their sin. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. The imagined conversation Paul is having with his readers goes something like this: Paul, flee immorality. Them? But why? Every sin a person commits is outside the body. Paul, that can't be true, because, verse 18, a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What the third lie means is this, that sin is only really sin if I stop trusting God in my heart. As long as I say I trust in Jesus, nothing I do with my body can hurt me. Sin doesn't count as long as my heart is clean. Sin can't really hurt me as long as I'm trusting in Jesus. But, Paul says, the person who commits sexual sin is actually sinning against his own body. And if you're wondering, what's the big deal about sinning against my own body, just look at what Paul writes next. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? If you are a Christian, then your body is the temple where God himself the Holy Spirit resides. Have you ever heard the expression, this body's a temple? Right? Usually when people say that, when they say their body's a temple, they kind of mean, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't eat the food that you eat, uh, I'm better than you because of the way I treat my body. And what, usually what people mean, if you boil it down, is that my body is what I worship. My body is the most important thing to me. But the real meaning behind what Paul says here about our body being a temple is not that you worship your body, but that your body has become the place where you worship God all of the time because the Holy Spirit indwells believers. He empowers believers to live holy lives. The power to live a holy life worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ and honoring to God has come and taken up residence inside of us. That's amazing. And that means that to turn our backs on that opportunity and willingly choose to go on sinning against our own bodies, that's a serious thing. And this leads to the next lie that we are, t- that we are tempted to believe about our bodies, and that's this. I am the rightful owner of my body. The well-known blo- uh, Christian blogger Tim Challies recently posted a few thoughts that... Uh, that bear on this, on on who, who actually has the right of ownership over our bodies. Here's, here's the highlights only version of his article. The first right of ownership is God's. God created you, and as your creator, has rights over all of you. The second right of ownership is God's again. God the Father owns your body as your maker, God the Son owns it as your redeemer. And God, the Holy Spirit, owns it as the one who resides within it. In sin, you essentially usurped God's right of ownership, but Christ's work on the cross bought it back. The third right of ownership, he goes on, he says, is your spouse's, if you think about it. If you are married, you have ceded all rights over to your spouse, at least in the area of sexuality. And He goes on to quote from 1 Corinthians 7, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And just think how a perspective like that can reorient all the arguments about who owns what in their body. God has first rights as creator of your body. He designed what it's made for. And God has the right of ownership again because Jesus Christ has purchased it back in redemption. And it's that second one, of course, that Paul is referring to in verses 19 and 20 when he says, you are not your own, For you were bought with a price. And what was the price that was paid? Well, we've already made that the center of our worship this morning when we came to celebrate the communion table, to participate in the Lord's Supper. We've remembered that Jesus' broken body and his shed blood on the cross was the price. His perfect life was paid in order to buy back your sinful one. We, we began our time by mentioning how the place where our faith is actively lived out, the place where you actually obey God and love him and serve him and love others is in your body. And for our sake, Jesus came and took on a body. The price that was paid for your body and life, which were disobedient to God, was the body and life of Christ, who was obedient to God. William Robinson once made some observations on what it costs to buy a man, which I'm going to paraphrase here. Is man worth the cost? There are parts of the world, whether we like to think of it or not, where a man might be purchased for the same price as an ox. But imagine that same man commits a crime against the state for which he is sentenced to be hanged or imprisoned for life. Go and try and buy him now. Redeem him and make your servant if you can. Let the richest man in the world offer every treasure he possesses for that worthless man. His offer will prove insufficient now. Why? Because now it is not only the man that must be paid for, but also the law. It would take a very great price indeed to redeem one man from the curse of the law in England, but Christ came to redeem all men from the curse of the divine law. That was the price that Jesus paid for you, for all of you, body, mind, and soul. And before we leave today, there is one final lie that sometimes creeps up on us. And that final lie is this. Surely someone like Jesus would never die for someone like me. I have made too many mistakes. My value is too little. I hear that I'm supposed to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, and body, and it seems like all I've ever done is rebelled against him with all of those parts of me. But because of the blessed mercy and grace of our Redeemer, I am able to say to you today with every confidence that that is not true. The gospel will not allow you for one minute to think that you need to clean up your act in order to convince Jesus that you're worth the price. He paid for you. Note very carefully that Paul is writing to these ones who are Christians, and he does not say anything at all like this. He does not say this. He doesn't say, now, be extra careful and holy and pure, and if you play your cards just right and get a little bit lucky and be extra pure for the next little while, then maybe, maybe your body will become a temple and the Holy Spirit will come and dwell in you. And maybe Jesus Christ will finally buy you. No. What Paul says is that because of what Christ has already done, giving his life as a sacrifice and a payment for you, anyone who is trusted is already filled with the Holy Spirit. The table spread before us here that we celebrated today, it speaks with the voice and the love of Christ. It is done. It is done. I have paid it all. You are mine. If you believe in Christ, you are not called to somehow be holy enough for God to move in. He has already moved in. And that is why you must now be holy. That is how and why you are to glorify God with your bodies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word which enters into our darkness and our confusion and shines the light on both our sin and our need and reveals to us our all-sufficient Savior, the one who gave us that table that we celebrated today, the one who said, this is my body, broken for you, the one who said, this is my blood, drink it, it is poured out for the forgiveness of many lord we pray that you would you would bring us to a place of repentance for the ways either in mind or in body through through actions or through negligence that we have failed to glorify you with our lives that we have failed to love you and love those around us the way you have called us to but we come to you with overwhelming thanks because we know that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness. We know that in Jesus you have provided for us a Redeemer. And Lord, we, we come to you with hearts that are full of awe and, and thankfulness and worship. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for living the life we could not live, for dying in our place and restoring us to God the Father through your work. Thank you, Father, for sending the Son and also for sending your Spirit, for putting your Holy Spirit within us to help us. We ask that the power that comes from that would guide us in all truth in the coming week, would guide us into a deeper and deeper appreciation for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. We pray that others will see that and come to know you as a result. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.